Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. Joe Biden has been president for just over a week, and wow, do we have a whole lot to talk about. Normally, I would start with a news update, bringing you up to speed on everything that just happened and give you my take on what it all means for our public lands. But why should you listen to me when we have someone with way more and much better perspective on hand? Let's be honest here. Uh, She needs no introduction, but I will give her one anyway. Sally Jewell was the 51st Secretary of the Interior, serving during Barack Obama's second term. Before that, she was the CEO of a boutique outdoor retail company, called REI. She spent 19 years as a commercial banker. She started her career as a petroleum engineer in Oklahoma. And so with that, Secretary Sally Jewell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here. So on Wednesday, the Biden administration announced a sweeping executive order, actually a series of orders on climate change that includes pausing oil and gas leasing on public lands in the Outer Continental Shelf, There's a directive to pursue the 30 by 30 goal of protecting 30 percent of America's land and waters by 2030. And there's an overarching commitment to putting environmental justice front and center across the entire administration, not just the Interior Department or EPA. So starting with any or all of those, give us your thoughts on the order and how the Interior Department in particular can go about implementing it. Well, let me start by saying that the ambition that they've identified right out of the chute, I think, is extraordinarily helpful. There is no question that with each year, we have become more and more aware of the challenges of climate change. And over the last four years, we have seen so much work around addressing climate change and biodiversity loss and thoughtful, constructive, collaborative management of public lands thrown aside with just a breakneck pace to to lease federal lands and waters for oil, gas, and mineral development, which is potentially devastating if developed. So I applaud this administration for its swift action in putting a pause while we take our breath and take stock in what has been done over the last four years and what needs to happen going forward. Um, As Secretary of the Interior, one of the things that we worked hard on was putting a pause on the coal leasing program, which hadn't been looked at for over 30 years. I'm proud of the work that was done, but we didn't get it across the finish line because there was insufficient time. But we had many, many community meetings to identify what's wrong with the federal coal leasing program. Does it impact uh, the landscapes? How does it impact the communities, the jobs? But also, what kind of a lousy deal are we giving to the taxpayer? And the reality, as identified by the Biden administration, is the same kind of review needs to take place for oil and gas. So I applaud this administration for swiftly saying, we're gonna put a pause, we're gonna take stock in what we have, we're gonna pay attention to where we need to go to the future, for the future, and uh, then we're gonna craft policies in a way that is collaborative and listens to all points of view. So I'm uh, hugely appreciative of the swift action and the effort that they have as identified in their press release to listen to different points of view. And I think that's really smart. So walk us through then what these next couple years will look like in terms of that crafting, watching the sausage get made, and 
how do you make sure you do it so that it does actually get done uh, in a time when it can make it into the federal register and stick? You know, when I think back over the four years or just under four years that I spent as Secretary of the Interior on what we were able to accomplish, the things that I am most proud of were the efforts that required what we talked about as epic collaboration. It was bringing people of vastly different points of view together in an authentic way to get to know each other as individuals, not just as assumed ideologies, to listen and to shape uh, policies and programs that respected different points of view. And, you know, examples of that, you know, work with many of the states in the, the Great Basin and the Plains on the preservation of critical habitat in the sagebrush sea so that the greater sage grouse would not warrant a listing under the Endangered Species Act. Most people said that couldn't be done because of the hard work of nonprofit nations and states and ranchers and oil companies and the BLM Forest Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service and the USGS all coming together. The Fish and Wildlife Service said the, the species did not warrant a listing because of collaborative efforts on protecting key habitat in the sagebrush sea. When the Trump administration said, we're going to revisit that, I heard from a very conservative Western states governor who said, I really miss you. And I said, really, why is that? And he said, it's because the oil companies are coming to me saying, why is this being revisited? We thought we had a deal. So what I hope and what I have seen in the fact sheets and things that the Department of the Interior has put out since this announcement is a commitment to listening and to collaboration. And there's a phrase I've used in business, and I used it as secretary as well. Sometimes you have to slow down before you can speed up. You have to slow down and listen and say, what is the common ground that the oil and gas industry and the environmental community and the communities who have jobs that are dependent on fossil fuels and you know, Indian tribes in the regions, um, the outdoor recreationists, you name it, what is it? that they're common and is there a pathway forward where we can listen to those points of view and craft that, uh, that, that pathway. And that's exactly what worked well for us, not only in the sagebrush sea and, you know, setting up Atlantic um, wind energy leasing in uh, off of the Atlantic board um, establishing solar energy zones within the Mojave Desert or, or renewable energy zones, solar and wind, because of uh, that kind of epic collaboration of efforts, for example, along the Klamath River in uh, Oregon and California on dam removal, which, you know, it's a deal that fell apart in Congress, but is continuing to move forward on the removal of those dams because of efforts on the and that had to do with this kind of deep collaboration. So that is what I expect and hope that the Biden administration does to bring people along and to move past just the, you know, really uh, dramatic rhetoric that you're hearing right now in response to their announcement. So what do you think that looks like? I'm trying to imagine. So I, I was on uh, on a WGN America's News Nation last night and they had a reporter in Gillette, Wyoming, with a report from a bar on 
oil and gas leasing and the leasing pause. And there was a whole lot of swearing and bleeping going on in the bar. And I'm trying to imagine then if you sit down with those folks and the mayor of Gillette, who was much more uh, you know, reserved, but obviously still uh, on the side of the oil and gas companies. What happens when you get those folks in a room with, say, the Sunrise Movement, who you know, endorsed President Biden, but have very strong expectations for what he's going to do in terms of of oil and gas leasing. What do you think a meeting like that goes like? And how do you get two sides like that into into a happy place if if there is a happy place? Yeah, well, it it starts by moving beyond sides and gets to interactions with each other where it inevitably when you begin to build relationships between people, the ideologies and the assumptions about each other and the biases fall away to where you really begin to understand where they're coming from. And once you do that, and we saw that on the Sage Grouse, for example, and we saw it in a number of other collaborative efforts as well. I mean, in the Klamath, I've never seen more men emotional about the efforts that took place to try and balance the needs of ranchers and tribes and forest products companies and landowners downstream than the efforts that went on in the climate. This is what needs to happen now. So I'm gonna give you an example of something that the Obama administration uh, tried to do and we got as far as a pilot that was approved through Congress. And it was something called Power Plus. So in Appalachia, where economic coal mining has not been, uh, well, it's been declining in its economic value for many years. And it's competing with the Powder River Basin, for example, in Wyoming on the production of coal. And so how do you deal with dramatic challenges with pollution in those communities where the water is toxic because of uh, drainage. People have no economic opportunities because they were dependent on that coal mining. Uh, their community is safe to live in, so it becomes a you know an equity issue in terms of the communities that are damaged. And you know, the coal miners have no work. And so Power Plus said, let's unlock the money that's already sitting in the US Treasury for mine reclamation and put these miners to work in reclaiming the land, taking those coal refuse piles that are both you know, steep and, and sloughing off and causing landslides, but also leaching toxins in some places just you know, 100 or 200 feet from a person's backyard, and take those coal refuse piles and move them into the pits where they came from, and layer them with lime to neutralize the acid, and allow the soils to do their natural filtration, while putting those miners to work. So I went out on one of these job sites where we were putting miners to work reclaiming lands using funds that have been contributed over the years to mine reclamation but have not been used. And universally, the miner said to me, we don't expect our kids to work in this industry. We appreciate having the opportunity to clean up these lands, but our kids who've been educated thanks to our ability to mine coal over the years are now choosing different professions. And they just need a bridge to get to uh, their own retirement 
and to do it in a way that reclaims their communities. So, I mean, that's one small illustration of a project that would align the interest of miners with the interests of environmentalists with the long-term economic prospects of a community that by cleaning itself up can open itself up to other forms of economic activity, whether that's development or outdoor recreation, tourism, and so on. And the same can be true, uh, can be said for oil and gas where you've got, I mean, potentially millions, but certainly documented uh, tens of thousands uh, with an expectation of hundreds of thousands of abandoned oil and gas wells. We don't even know where they are, or you know, we do know that they're leaking methane. We do know they're polluting water. We do know that they're uh, causing spills and we've not even begun to clean them up. So those That's same skills way, that, that yeah. apply to oil, oil, oil drilling also apply to oil cleanup. Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, you, you need a rig to plug and abandon a well but you've got to plug and abandon it. You can't just leave it leaking, uh, you know, oil and gas into the atmosphere and potentially salt water into the water supply systems. But that's happening uh, throughout oil and gas country, no matter where it is. I want to ask about the other challenges facing the Interior Department in the Biden administration, in particular, the attrition, the loss of career scientists, of career land managers, of of Bureau of Land Management headquarters, uh, and BLM brass getting forced out of D.C. and and a handful landing in Grand Junction, but not many. Uh, how number one from what you can tell, how severe is that problem? And number two, how do you go about addressing it? Well, there has been a problem for some time, which has been just marching down the track and people have known about it, which is the aging of the federal workforce and the inevitable brain drain that comes with retirements of people who are really exceptionally knowledgeable uh, in their areas of work, whether that is science or you know, um, energy policy, um, biodiversity, sciences, you know, National Park Service interpretation, you name it. Um, huge percentages of the federal workforce are eligible for retirement now. And I think if they uh, did not feel supported by the prior administration, it, it is awfully tough to try and spend four years with your head down if you don't feel valued for the work that you do. And I think it's fair to say that many of the career staffers did not feel valued. I think that was a challenge when I got uh, into Interior that you know it's been kind of open season on public employees for a long time, maybe even starting uh, you know more than a decade ago. So it's difficult to re-energize a workforce and convince them you really have their back as a political appointee where they have seen the pendulum swing back and forth. So we have a problem. Um, there are very good, knowledgeable public servants who have chosen to stick with this profession uh, despite the undermining of their work. Um, they're still there, and I think you will see them emerge, and I think you will see them be delighted to mentor a next generation. But what we really need in the federal workforce is, is the next generation. It's young people to recognize that there is no better place to have an impact throughout your career than in public service because 
the influence that you have to make a difference in people's lives, not just now, but for future generations is profound. There is nothing, and this is coming from a business person, right? <laughs> uh, 40 years in my career, I've been in business. Uh, and there is nothing as impactful as what you can do through government in service to the public. But it's hard. And so I think that what we need to do is take those who remain and perhaps some who've left that will are willing to come back to accelerate the mentorship of a young generation and also lean into their skills around technology and artificial intelligence and you know the further knowledge that we've had around our climate and our planet and put that to good work in service of where we need to go, not just for now, but for future generations. You were secretary during the takeover, armed takeover of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, we saw a number of guilty pleas, but then a number of leaders, including Ammon Bundy, be acquitted for their role there. And then we saw many of these same groups, like the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters, show up at the armed insurrection at the Capitol this month. Are you concerned that those same groups, those same impetuses, maybe, maybe those same people are going to be back trying to cause trouble, take over, threaten public lands again? Yes. These are extremely dangerous people with a mystifying ideology, frankly. Uh, it began not at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. My experience began on one of the worst uh, uh, times of my tenure as Secretary of the Interior, and that was the standoff in Bunkerville, Nevada, when the BLM was attempting to round up uh, Clive and Bundy's cattle because he had been grazing illegally on federal lands and not paying any grazing fees for over 20 years. And I can't tell you how many ranchers have come to me and said, he does not represent us. Um, so the ranchers, I mean, so the, um, the BLM went to round up the cattle and uh, Clive and Bundy and his sons basically called out the militias that we're now familiar with and uh, had a standoff that if we had not backed down which was really not popular decision with um, our own law enforcement people. But if we had not backed down, I feared that we would have had tremendous bloodshed, you know, on the order of Ruby Ridge, Idaho from years ago or mm -hmm. Waco, Texas, because they're itching for a fight. Yeah. And to have that circumstance result in very few consequences followed by the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge takeover, which, I mean, who thinks you can just take over a federal property for 44 days and it's okay? And yet the laws are weak in terms of uh, punishments. Certainly, I think there, in retrospect, there were errors made in the prosecution of that case, but it emboldened these groups. And until we uh, dish out the consequences that they deserve for this kind of activity, we are just emboldening a group of well-armed, ideologically extreme people um, that will continue to provide a domestic terrorism problem until they are brought to justice uh, and hopefully given an opportunity to learn about the error in the assumptions that they're making. 
Um, so this is a very, very risky time for the United States. And what we all witnessed on January 6th is just a small taste of what this group, I think, is uh, interested, frankly, in dishing out. You mentioned Ruby Ridge and Waco, and obviously the shadow of those incidents you know, loomed large over over both Bunkerville and Malheur. Uh, how do you balance then that fear of triggering more bloodshed versus uh, the lack of consequences leading to these folks being more emboldened? How do you swing that pendulum back so that there are consequences without just saying open fire, kill them all? Well, one of the things that happened right after Malheur was resolved, and, and frankly, the FBI made a judgment that the best thing to do was to wait these guys out was to not go in and give them the satisfaction of a firefight, but to wait them out. And, you know, others who are more familiar with this can decide whether that was a smart idea or not. There was not bloodshed. Uh, and I deeply appreciate that. I mean, there, there was the incident with, uh, you know, a, a person that has love, become love a martyr. Yep. Yeah. Um, but that was uh, not on, on uh, in the national wildlife refuge. What to, so I got a call from Senator Jeff Merkley <clears throat> from Oregon saying, Sally, what what could I do as a lawmaker to strengthen laws so that this is not okay? <clears throat> and I think that that is the right question to ask. If we have a circumstance where a capital can be vandalized and people are not or and and people have died, right, where they are not brought to justice, that will embolden people. We have got to be aggressive in prosecution. And if the laws are inadequate to prosecute, then we have to change those laws so that people are held accountable. And that was one of my lessons, I would say, from both Bunkerville and uh, Malheur is, yes, you have laws, but if you can't enforce them, what good are they? And in some cases, the laws aren't good enough. So if Cliven Bundy, who's continuing to graze his cattle on federal public lands without paying a dime, can continue to get away with it, then, um, you know, what good are those laws? And we have got to be willing to enforce them and stand behind them. And the penalties have to match the kinds of egregious behaviors that we have witnessed. I, I've heard some rumblings of, uh, of members of Congress maybe looking at strengthening the Taylor Grazing Act, particularly in light of the Hammond family getting their grazing privileges restored by Secretary Bernhardt on his way out the door. Is that something you think Congress should be looking at? Yes. Um, you know, the oil and gas leasing, the mineral leasing, the mining law of 1872, the Taylor Grazing Act, th these are really, I mean, many decades old laws. And in the case of grazing, when you look at the numbers, you know, if you have a yeah, a great piece of federal property which has water and, you know, strong capacity to support animals, that you're probably paying, in some cases, like one-twentieth of what you'd pay if it was private land, and maybe one-tenth of what you'd pay if it was state land. That is uh, land owned by the public, and the public taxpayer is getting screwed. And the same is true with the Mineral Act of 1872, where there basically is no royalty going back to uh, the public. And it's true with a lot of the oil and gas leasing programs where the royalties are low. 
uh, and you know, not reflective of what you'd be paying on private land or on state land. So yes, I think it needs to be reviewed. Um, there will be a hue and a cry against it. And I certainly would prioritize things like uh, oil and gas and mining ahead of grazing. Uh, because I know it's a hard scrabble existence for those who are grazing on on federal lands, but it's certainly something that needs a review. During your time as secretary, you spent quite a bit of time meeting with, talking with tribal leaders across the country. Uh, we saw that consultation obviously drop off tremendously over the the last the four years after that. How well? Just reflect if you could on the nomination of Deb Holland to be the next Interior Secretary. How meaningful is that to have the first Native American Secretary of the Interior? Well, I think it's very, very meaningful for tribes in particular to know that there is someone uh, who's overseeing a department which, you know, for more than a century has been viewed by tribes as being you know, the the main agency that was not upholding the trust and treaty obligations to them. So it's it's beyond symbolic. It's someone with a lived experience that knows the consequences of those early actions and how important it is to uh, to reverse them. So, you know, I'm I am fully supportive of Congresswoman Holland's nomination and uh, doing everything I can to be helpful uh, to her and, and others in the department as she gets up to speed, because it is a an extraordinarily steep learning curve, uh, as I learned coming from the business community <laughs> and having to get up to speed myself. But let, let me say that the times that I spent with tribal leaders were some of the most rewarding times I had in Interior. And what my team would tell you is early on, I said, please do not overschedule me so that I can get to know the people that I'm visiting with, whether that is career staff at the Department of the Interior or, or visiting a public land site or going and visiting a tribe. And I said, particularly with tribes, I need to be respectful and I need to have time to listen. And even though the schedule is very full and, you know, it didn't lend itself to spending as much time as I would have liked, the time that I did spend was, was, was moving and powerful. And what I came to begin to appreciate was the deep connections to the land and the landscapes. And as it's now been pretty well documented by people in academia and others that the best managed landscapes in the world in terms of biodiversity and sustainability are those that uh, continue to be um, overseen by the indigenous communities, whether that's in Borneo or the Amazon or in the United States or in Canada um, or in Mexico and Central America. So um, I came to appreciate that. And I think Deb Holland will understand that and uh, one of the things that we did while I was in Interior is really clarify what tribal consultation meant. And it did not mean just check the box. And unfortunately, I think we went back to that. Mm -hmm. It meant listen and engage. And I would love in this next chapter to see deeper engagement in public land management with uh, tribal communities uh, in their homelands um, or public lands that are in their ancestral homelands 
help us understand through their thousands of years of observation what needs to be done in order to make those landscapes sustainable and uh, not just for now, but for generations to come, especially at this time of challenge with climate change and, and biodiversity loss. We need to listen. And I think Deb Holland will get that, which is great. But I think this administration, also the Biden administration, uh, will work hard to say, how do we do more in engaging with tribes in uh, the management of the lands that are under federal government stewardship? In the last couple minutes we have, I'd just love to hear you reflect back on some of your travels as secretary. Obviously, getting to see America's public lands has got to be the, the biggest perk of being the interior secretary. What moments on your travels as secretary do you look back on the most fondly or which moments changed you the most? Certainly the opportunity to visit in landscapes with tribes were incredibly moving and powerful. Um, Bears Ears National Monument, which of course Trump um, shrunk dramatically, uh, was an opportunity to visit with tribal leaders actually out between the Bears Ears Buttes in an area that was sacred to five different tribes who have not always gotten along and their, um, their uses of the landscapes differed. I mean, their ancestors may well with each other. Those that passed through um, were more genetic uh, and those who uh, had settled. And to be there with them together, to, to feel the reverence um, that they had for the lands, to sit in a teepee around a circle and listen to them talk about their connections to this place was incredibly powerful. And uh, that sense will never leave me. I also met with those uh, from that region, tribal communities who were not supportive of a monument designation and to listen to the reasons why. And, and, and honestly, the reasons why were not something that they had to worry about in terms of traditional uses, but they were based on some misinformation, but also enabled us to sharpen the language to make sure their interests were protected too. So, you know, I'd say that the the announcement that we made um, around the decision, this decision not to list the greater sage grouse as uh, on the Endangered Species Act with four governors, two Democrat, two Republican, with the Audubon Society, with um, ranchers, was also really powerful. And one rancher, uh, Dwayne Coombs from Nevada, got up and talked about three generations of 10-year-olds. One was his dad, who developed a deep distrust for the federal government when he rounded up cattle to be paid for by the federal government during the Great Depression, and the cattle were slaughtered in front of his eyes. This is a 10-year-old. Uh, his son, Dwayne, um, grew up with that profound distrust of government because of his father, and yet had seen the cooperative relationships form with land managers on how he could be a better steward through his practices. And then his 10-year-old daughter, who would say at that time that her best friend was a scientist from the USGS that had taught her how to... Um, prevent the sage grouse from getting tangled up in their fences and how to do a better job on the land. So it's those 
you know, those personal stories, those personal connections that you get that were really moving. And I mean, I, I know I, we don't have time to go on too long, but I'd also say the Every Kid in a Park Pass, which has been codified now mm-hmm. in law as Every Kid Outdoors, you know, watching youngsters in Nevada at Red Rock National Conservation Area, you know, join me in picking apart some dried scat we found on the trail to try and figure out what these critters were eating or going to the Channel Islands National Park with these kids from across the mountains in Agland, um, all for whom uh, were, were from farm working families. English may have been their first language or their second language. With a ranger talking to them about bringing the endangered Channel Islands fox back from the brink of extinction going on a boat with these kids because of this every kid in a park pass to the channel islands and then watching the kids as they actually spotted a fox. I mean, Uh, how often does that happen? It's just extraordinary. So those were just a handful of uh, many, many memorable experiences that will never leave me. And uh, the common thread is it is about listening to each other. It's about paying attention to our landscapes. It's about, um, sharing knowledge and thinking about the future. So I, uh, if I can leave you with my favorite quote that I thought of often, it is that we don't inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. So if we're borrowing this earth from our children, what is it that they're going to face and what can we do about it today? And, uh, there's nothing like public service to have an impact uh, and to catalyze discussions in that direction. And I just profoundly hope that, um, we will listen to different points of view and bring people to appreciate each other and, uh, develop a shared set of facts and a shared understanding on where we need to go. Former secretary of the interior, Sally Jewell, thank you so much for your time and especially for your insight today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Aaron. Thanks so much for shining a light on these important topics. Wow. Uh, I'll just say that we have been hoping for some time to get Secretary Jewell on the podcast, and that was well worth the wait. Thanks so much to my colleague Lauren Bogard for making this episode happen. And a reminder that if you've got someone you think we should have on the landscape, drop us a line, podcast at westernpriorities.org. And if you just discovered us, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way for new listeners to find us. I'm Aaron Weiss. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.